Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Curtis Ring Thompson. Oh, my God. You did that. You, you revealed my middle name. And my friend, the most beautiful man in the world, Pepper Sweeney. Dude, people were swooning We are here to discover and explore. <laughs> we are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And, right. you know, I, I think mean, that the only, I think you. that we, like, you are like, doc, you are Dr. Swoon. That's listen, what people are going to call you. Listen. <laughs> we're calling you. Listen. Listen. I think it's important. <laughs> okay. Okay. Five times. Known. Okay. I'm waiting. Yes. And uh, I happen to love the the, the uh, ring of your middle name. Just the, the, oh. when, you, when they're all oh. strung together. Okay. Curtis Ring okay. Thompson, we should, we, MD. I mean, yeah. you know, that's, that's uh that's a happening <laughs> moniker right there. That is a happening <laughs> moniker. How are you, buddy? Oh, man. I was better about three minutes ago. Well, you know, I do what I can. <laughs> Somebody's got to bring you down to earth. Oh, you know, life can't be all just... Uh, Ring-a-ling. Yes. Ding-a-ling. Exactly. All the things. Exactly. All the things that my middle school childhood memories are now... Are bringing back into the studio. Yes. <laughs> For a reminder, we are in the midst of season eight of the Being Known podcast, and we are putting ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the sense of beauty. And I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, hopefully this week you've spent some time looking at some of the works of Frank Lloyd Wright, because we're going to talk about that towards the end of the episode, especially Falling Waters. If you haven't, don't worry. You, you, you'll still have time to be able to do that afterwards. So let's yeah. dig in, Kurt. Yeah. Just as, as a reminder to our listeners, we have talked about this notion over the course of the you know time that we've been doing this podcast, this notion of what does it mean for us to put ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty? And we've kind of come at it in some ways that are maybe direct, but not quite as deep as we really want to plow into in this particular season. And, you know, it's, it's funny, Pep. I mean, it, we're going to, over the course of this season, we're going to be talking about the work of Compassion International. And I, th- this, this notion of paying attention to beauty and watching beauty emerge in the hardest places of our lives was really brought home to us, to me, to, to you, to mm-hmm, us in for sure. in the trip that we talked about that we'll that, that we will that we will talk about. And I just want to remind our listeners that we don't want this season to be some abstract thing, right? We we really want this to, as we say, this notion of being known really does. Um, Focuses attention. God is focusing his attention. The knowing of us, our our being known by others, really is about the discovery of beauty. But our trauma and our wounds so effectively keep us from paying attention to it, or even thinking about paying attention to it, that we miss. We and so we end up thinking that beauty is just you know it's just an accessory. Uh, it's a luxury. It's not something that's actually necessary for us to flourish. But we'll come to discover in today's episode that beauty begins with our very entrance into the world. And why we're talking today about this notion of beauty and connecting it to what we call the vertical integration domain when it comes to interpersonal neurobiology. And by vertical, we're talking about the body 
and the place of the body as our means of encounter in the world. And at some level, like this can all just be rather obvious, right? Yeah, okay, we've got bodies and we encounter the world, the material world. I'm looking at the oak tree outside, the car that we drive, you know, the cold that we get, the injury to Joe Burrow's calf that, you know, we're all praying for. Yes. Some harder than others. Right. The, the Chiefs aren't praying for that. Because <laughs> no. you know, they know, they know what, if he gets well, they know what's coming. Yes. The Chiefs know what's coming. For all our Chief fans out there, we love you. We just love the Bengals more. We do. We do. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But this notion that our bodies are always in this rhythmic dance with the material world, this notion that we, so, so one of the ways that we, that we talk about how we are always perceiving things in the world. Like I, I perceive like a glass of water. If I see the glass of water sitting on my counter, I perceive it. And it's of course obvious that there's a glass of water there. And, you know, I'm just, I just want to walk over and get my glass of water. I don't want to have some conversation about the neuroscience of what my brain is doing, what my body is doing to have an encounter. But it, interestingly enough, when I look at an object, a glass of water or a painting or whatever it is, it's true that I'm looking at that object, but it's equally true that what's really happening as far as my brain is concerned is my, like, I think, oh, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Frank Lloyd Wright's falling water. I'm looking at one of those rooms in that house that's right. just unbelievable. Yeah. But what's really happening is my brain doesn't see a room in the house. My brain is only see my eyes, you know, the light comes to the back of the eye, the retina and it runs into the brain and then the brain has to manufacture my perception of this room that I'm looking at. My brain has to manufacture the perception of the person I'm speaking with. My brain has to manufacture a perception of myself. But that embodied experience is something that when my brain is kind of like with all those 100 billion neurons is constructing that object, what it's doing is also then giving me the opportunity to have an encounter with that object. So the reason that I know that the glass of water is really there is because I walk over and pick it up. I've taken care of patients who see things that aren't there. Mm -hmm. well, what is that? Well, that's their brain constructing things that they perceive to be in the world that don't actually exist in the world. But when we pick up the glass of water, we have a high correlation, extraordinarily high correlation. So much so that, you know, when we pick things up, we say, oh, that's real because it's really there. I don't imagine that my brain is making these things up. But this is really important because when it comes to our stories and when it comes to the sense that we make of our stories, we first have to recognize that my body is the first thing to encounter the world. When my eye sees the glass of water, it's my body that is taking this in long before I even think that I have the thought, oh, that's a glass of water sitting on the counter. Of, of course that's true, but before I'm thinking it in brain terms, my body is having a sensory experience right. of it. And the reason that this is important is because we often pay so little attention to what my body is doing, and I'm so locked into my thinking brain that when it comes to all the things in my life, the things that I love, but the things that have wounded me, I think about them a lot. I don't pay that much attention to how is my body encountering this to begin with. I'm not really paying attention to this notion that 
the body operates the brain, the central nervous system, bottom to top and right to left, as we've said here on our on our show so many times, this notion that my spinal cord collects senses, it runs north up the spinal cord into the right side of the brain. From the right, it runs to the left side of the brain where I then tend to make sense. I'm starting to think and analyze those things. I'm perceiving what I'm sensing, and then I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to make sense of this. I recently told folks that um, I've made a list of people that I have to forgive. Okay. Um, go ahead. Am I on the top of that list? Uh, you're actually, uh, you actually occupy several spots nice. on that list. Well, I have I, 10 people and, and you it. occupy, and, and you occupy, you occupy, no, you occupy 11 of the 10 spots. Yes. Yes. I've, I've got 11 different events. Right. So you've made a list of, you of people that, you've, you've made, you've, you've made a list of people that you need to forgive. I made a list. And here's the thing, because I've had real encounters with people, right? Real, like real embodied encounters. But then what happens? I have an encounter that might've happened a year ago or two years or 10 years, 50, 20 years ago. But then what do I do? I continue to tell a story right. about that. And I think it's easy for me to perceive that it's the thing that happened to me that is the problem. When in fact, I am my problem. Right. I'm the one who's telling a story about what they think about me, about what I think that they think, all the things. And so I'm not really paying that much attention to the fact that like, oh, my body had a particular experience. And now I'm telling the story about it over and over. And that story that I tell reinforces the physical felt sense of what happened the very first time it happens, as opposed to, well, wait a minute. What is Jesus saying to me about telling a different story about the thing that I'm encountering in my body? And this is a reminder of this notion of what happens when we read Genesis 1, that God comes and creates order and purpose out of chaos in the second sentence of the Bible, and that he brings beauty to the material world. That's the intention. And it's not just the beauty of the thing that I see, but it's also its purpose. There's beauty in our purpose. And this is where our trauma really wreaks havoc with us because it's not just that I had, it's not just that somebody sexually abused me. It's not just that I was mistreated in the church. It's not just that I had this event happen at work. Those things are true, but then it fractures my sense of purpose. Right, right. Can we talk for a minute? If I know we have a, we have a lot we want to cover, but I, I would love to talk for a minute about this list of people that you that you need that you want to forgive. I, I'm being serious. I'm, this isn't a joke. Okay. I, okay. I, I, I know that's sometimes hard to tell. <laughs> um, so, so what is your intention with that, with that list? Yeah. And is this something like a 12 step where you're going to go and talk to these people, or is this something you're going to do internal, internal, solely mm -hmm. internal work? And then, yeah. and then what outcome are you looking for? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, so the, the, let me first say that the, um, I, I don't have an intention of going to talk with them. Okay. That's, I, I think, I mean, in some respects, because I don't, have, most of these folks, I don't have a lot of interaction with. Some of these folks are not even alive. Right. Right. But what I am doing is literally in my mind, mm -hmm. and this is where we, we perceive things. We think, oh, it's just in my mind, because if it's in my mind, then it's not in my body. Right. And this is really what we're getting back to, that, that like if it's in your mind, it is in your body because your brain is doing the work. Yeah. And so I'm having a picture in my mind of the encounter that I had. And then I'm moving to my kitchen table where I am sitting with this person and with Jesus. And I'm listening to Jesus talk to me 
as he talks with me and with his person. And I'm listening to Jesus talk to me and be curious with me about what's this, what's the story that you've told? Hmm. Tell me about the story that you've told that this person, that you believe this person is essentially told and is telling about you. And I tell him and he's like, well, let's look at that. And then he said, like, how does that compare to the story that I would like for you to hear that I'm telling about you? Hmm. And they're like, uh, okay. Oh, this is where things get tricky. Because I recognize that uh, even though these events might have happened a year or two or 20 years ago, they land on a remembered, embodied experience of what it was like for me when I was four and 10 and 16. This didn't just begin with these particular events. This, this, this is a story. These events are just examples of a story I've been telling myself my entire life. And so the whole process of emerging beauty starts to come with me retelling a story, yeah. with letting Jesus be the storyteller. And what I, what I find is that the way I am aware, and this, this has already begun to happen, I sense, like literally, I have a relief in the center of my chest. That's beautiful. And I'm aware of it. And I'm aware that, like, you know, as, as, I've, as, I've, as I've reflected on this, I'm becoming aware, like, oh my gosh, like, I've enjoyed holding a grudge against some of these folks. Like, I've enjoyed it. I don't think about it that often, but when I do, like I enjoy thinking about the event and then imagining myself being really angry and, you know, whatever yes, I'm yes, going to do. Yes. And like, wow. So I reinforce, like I, I, I entangle my hurt and my shame with the pleasure of hurting them. Mm of doing violence mm. to them in my mind. Mm -hmm. But I don't just do it, it's not just an independent, like I feel the violence in my body. And my body, my body's encounter with this is like where it actually happens. That's where it gets reinforced. That's where like, oh, okay, I like that feeling. I'm just gonna like put that back in the room and I'm gonna go back and find that a little, you know, like in a, in a few weeks. Right. When I'm feeling really upset about myself, not very good about myself, I'll go back and think about what that person said or did or didn't say and so forth and so on. And I'm going to enjoy, you know, being angry or right. whatever. Remembering that, oh, this is taking place in the context of my physically experienced remembrance of this. And it's happening in isolation. I'm doing it by myself. I don't invite you over. I don't call you up and say, hey, Pep, I want to just go have a, you know, a five-minute fantasy about really being mad about at this, for this person. And right. I want to, like, could you join me with this and, like, help support my anger and my, my grudge that I'm holding? Right. No. No, I'm, I'm by myself, which is what enables me to hold the grudge, which is what enables me to remain in this place of chaos. All right, that's not Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is God coming to chaos and giving order and purpose. And but but these 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 experiences of mine are chaotic. Like they're not fun. They weren't fun when they happened. And God is coming just like he did in Genesis 1 and hovering and then creating purpose and order. But he does so because I'm saying, like, I, I have to, I, you know, I have to say this to you. I have to say this to Phil. Like, my wife, Phyllis, has really been helpful for me in helping reframe, like, imagining, reimagining what these stories are really about. 
But I, so I can't do this by myself. I don't forgive people by myself. I mean, I actually have to do that work, but I can't do it by myself. I need help. And I need help. I, 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 again, it's not some abstract function in my head. I have to do it by practicing something that actually I feel in my body when I know that it's right. changing. Yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing that. And so we're moving. That'll, that's yeah. helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, this is, and, and so it, it's also the work of like, it's not a, th- so forgiveness in this sense is not a thing that I do. It's a thing I'm becoming. Yeah. I'm becoming, I'm becoming living, breathing forgiveness like that. So when Jesus says to Peter, no, it's actually not seven times. It's 70 times seven, which is hyperbole, right? It's right. just like, that's not the point. Right. We're not keeping, we're not keeping track of numbers. Yeah. Forgive without it's ceasing. It's who are you becoming? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I like, and I'm, I'm lighter. Like I'm, I'm, I'm less like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm different. And I'm aware too that like, sometimes I think, oh, if I forgive that person, I've done it. And then I, and then it won't bother me anymore. But I'm only ever a stair step away from like returning to that old story, that old path. Like you can, like you can reenter the path of enjoying being angry at people. Sure. So it's not just a thing that I do. It's the choice to continually become something different. But that is never separate from my embodied experience of it, my embodied, like my material experience of the world. And so I imagine these people in my mind I'm, as I one person at a time, and I'm imagining being with them at the table, and I'm imagining smiling at them, mm. like literally, like like practicing, like we, you know, if you were to walk in on me, you think like, dude, like what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing. I'm smiling. I'm smiling at the person that I'm mad at. Right. You're like, there's nobody else in the room. <laughs> like, so are you, are, are you, you are you, are you that guy that right now is seeing things that aren't here? Right. Right. Yeah. Because when we, you know, th- so this, this notion of Genesis one being out of chaos comes order and purpose and beauty. And then Genesis two, this notion that it, it happens with a certain sequence, right? He goes from separating he, from chaos, he light and darkness, and then he separates the water in, in the dry land. And in the dry land, you've got this wilderness, and then he plants a garden in the wilderness, and then water springs up even in this dry land that waters the garden, and it makes mud. And there is a sequence of creation that God begins making us with our bodies. He begins with mud. He formed the man out of the dust of the earth, out of the mud of the earth, and then he breathes life. And there is this sequence. And so whenever we are thinking about beauty, there's a sequence about like, what is the material realm that I'm encountering? And what are the, what are the material realms that I can, as we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes, what are the material realms that I can talk about that enable me to imagine beauty and that enable me to sense beauty, even in my body, long before I'm thinking about it long before I'm thinking about it in, in, in brain time, we are mud and then we are breath. And then this goes back and forth in my breath, my life, my thinking, my sense, all these things that I'm doing with my thought processes are affecting the mud, right? They're affecting the body. And if I'm not careful and my trauma gets a hold of me, that trauma then shatters my capacity even to pay attention to the mud very effectively. So I can perceive beauty in my mind, but even that requires my brain activity. It was said that Einstein, before he came up with the math, 
He saw his physics in pictures. And those pictures are three-dimensional structures in Mm. his mind that, of course, like, yeah, they're not out in the room, but they're in his mind that require the activity of his neural networks. It's an embodied, imagined moment that he then incarnates because then he starts talking about math, which we think, oh, that's just abstract. But then when you start talking about how we've discovered that space is actually a voluminous thing that shifts in and of itself, that's just... Like, that's just this amazing thing that, right. like, math actually, as it turns out, isn't just math. Right. It's always correlating to the material universe. And so our imagination, as we've said here before, that we are continually moving. God continually moves more and more from the imagination to the incarnation, from imagination to the incarnate, and in Jesus, and then in us. And then we become these conveyors of beauty. You know, you all may have heard, Pepper and I took a trip to El Salvador, and we have so much to share with you. In fact, in a future episode this season, Amy will interview Pepper and me about our trip. Pep, you remember Vanessa, the mother of the two little babies? Oh my gosh, yes. Yes, we went to her house. Vanessa is a mother of four, two of which are twin babies. You know, we witnessed Vanessa and her husband going to great, and I, I mean great, lengths to provide for their family. And the thing that I realized, you know, in the moment is they had the very same dreams and hopes for their kids as we have for ours. And what we discovered was that with the support of a compassion sponsorship, it's possible for those dreams to be realized. You know, Phyllis and I have supported Compassion International for years, and we're so aware of the amazing work that they do. And one of the unique features about Compassion is that they work with the local church And what I love about this is that when help arrives, it arrives with a familiar face. We witnessed this impact firsthand in the way families experienced feeling seen, soothed, safe, and secure. You know, we saw the need firsthand in El Salvador. Consequently, we are centering our efforts there. However, should you feel a call to sponsor a child in another part of the world, you'll have that option as well. We as a community get to be part of this mission. We invite you to join us by sponsoring a child. $43 a month provides a child with all their basic needs and hope for a brighter future. Go to Compassion.com forward slash known. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N dot C-O-M forward slash K-N-O-W-N. And remember, $43 a month will literally change a child's life. Join us. So would you say that this work that you're doing for forgiveness, I, I'm sorry, I keep going back to that, but this work that yeah. you're going for forgiveness is sort of the imagination going to the incarnate, totally. right? Yeah, that's the, totally. that's the example of it because you're doing imagination work. And, right, right. right? And, right, totally. In order to, you know, I mean, you have this, say, say it's a trauma that you're needing to forgive, this trauma that's, that you're, that's in your body and you're, and you're, it's, it's stopping you from seeing beauty to a certain extent. Right. Right. In, this, I mean, in that person. Yes. In that person. In that person. Yeah. And, and pr- right. maybe not even in that person, you know, it could, it could be, look, I speak for myself as you're talking about these people you need to forgive. I'm, things are coming up in me that I'm thinking, yeah, there's some people that I need there. I, one particular person comes right to the top of my, you know, 
and yeah. and and you're I, looking at it. No, no, not at all. I, <laughs> but so, but, so I have work to do. But I think that that yeah. because I haven't done that fully done that work yet, I think that can fog up a lot of things, right? Totally. So, so doing this imagination work gets us to the incarnate, which allows us to see beauty in a better way. Mm, mm, yeah. Totally. And then allows that beauty to affect us in a better way. Right. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Like I'm thinking even right now, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking there's one, one, I'm thinking of one of these, one of these yeah. folks. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware that like some of these folks I will have encounters with in the future, in the near future. And like, you know, I can put on a good show. I mean, I can, whatever. Um, but I don't want to do that. Right. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be working to keep what I, you know, my grudge yes. in, you know, yeah. in the, in the mudroom while I'm, sh- well, you know, welcoming them into my foyer. It's always so interesting to me, the person that's holding on to this, like you in this case, holding on to this. Yeah. yeah. And the pain yeah. that it's causing you while this other yeah. person's just out here f- willy nilly free and happy. Right. And has, right. has no, has no, no, idea no idea of any of this stuff that you're going no. through and you that you keep telling yourself this story over and over again. I know. It's, I know. you're the one that's hurting from Damn. it. I right, know. Right. How dare they enjoy life, that <laughs> idiot. <laughs> I, don't, I think we've gone off the rails a little bit. <laughs> well, but I, but I mean, it's, yeah. in some respects, it's just like, like, okay. So if we were to say, Kurt, let's just, I'm just, even if we weren't talking about this and you were to say, uh, I, w- I want to put you in front of the irises. Yeah. I say that because like, I know that you love that painting. I, I love, do. I love the painting because you love the painting. I mean, because you introduced yeah. me to it. and. Yeah. And you think, okay, now uh, I want you to bring to mind any of those 10 folks, right? Four of them are family members of mine, all of whom are deceased. Hmm. And I mean, these are not people with whom I'm, I'm, I'm waging mortal combat, but, they're, they're, but things have happened that have, hurt, that have hurt my feelings. And I have, I have nursed that. Oftentimes without even knowing it. And, you know, if I sit with the irises and say, like, well, let's, let's, bring, let's bring your brother in, or let's bring your mom or your dad into the room. And I'll just have them sit right next to you. And let's have them look at it with you. And then at some point, like, ask them what they think about it. Ask them what they're sensing. Notice what's happening to them. It's really difficult for us to be, to allow ourselves to be in the presence of beauty and hold a grudge. Mm. If I'm willing, because it, things are happening, like literally because the beauty mm. starts to speak to me. It's difficult, you know, and, and, and beauty, for instance, it's, you know, we do these stories all the time, like where it's hard for us to maintain our harshness with someone who is just continually kind. To us, it, it, like it makes it maybe more harsh for a short period of time because I can't stand the fact that you're being kind to me when I'm being when I'm so pissed off. Right. But you know what I mean. Like we yeah. and, and so we have these wounds that we carry literally in our bodies, such that if we're willing over time to encounter beauty, we allow the imagined thing that I long for. Like I long to live a life of being living, breathing, pulsating forgiveness. But right now, like I got, I got miles to travel, yeah. Before I'm becoming that, but encountering beauty, encountering these things in your imagination, eventually allows it to become incarnate. And 
And so we, we have this world that we encounter where beauty exists, nature, all the things that are there in the world. And there's also the beauty that we then create, which we're going to get to in just a moment with Frank Lloyd Wright, this, this sense that we, we are creating things that we are perceiving in the world that inspire us to do things that our imaginations allow us to do. And I, I think about this notion, we, we go back to this, these four W's that, you know, beauty is, it's, it's wonder, it is welcome, it is worship, and it's work. If we want, you know, if you, you look at falling waters and you're like, yeah, somebody had to work to construct that. Somebody had to work. Frank Lloyd Wright had to work to imagine it. Yeah. And to imagine a thing that actually could exist in the world. I suppose we could imagine all kinds of things if we wanted to that aren't actually going to be able to exist in the material world. And then these three R's of this, this notion of first we're just going to be revealing things, right? So to forgive means something has to be revealed. Oh, there's the, there's this part of me that is holding on to that in a way that I don't really want to give up. It's revealing, but that will then have to be regenerated. It'll have to be healed in order for me then to go on and be recommissioned and to recommission me. I'm going to recommission the relationship. Even if I don't have contact with those folks, some I won't, that relationship is going to be regenerated, to be recommissioned in order for it to become something beautiful in and of itself that heretofore I could never have imagined it to be. But I have to pay attention to what's happening in my body in order for that to take place. So there, there, therefore we say, you know, we, we like to say that healing is a disruptive technology. This process of encounter, we, we love, like I'm going to go to the museum and I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the East Wing mm-hmm. at, right, at the Smithsonian. I'm, I'm going to see Rothko. Yeah. And I'm going to revel and I'm just going to sit and be, you know. And there's a sense in which beauty overwhelms us. Beauty creates all kinds of things that are wonderful for us. But beauty also, if you really want to encounter it, if you're going to take the hike into the Grand Canyon, if you're going to go down and back in a day. Yeah. You're going to pay for it. It's going to require things of you. It's going to cost you something. You will encounter beauty like you've never encountered it before, but it's going to cost you something. And we look at the wound of Genesis 2 where God separates the man, right? He falls into a deep sleep and there's a wound. He wakes up and there's, there's something's happened to him. But his response is poetry and song because the intention of that wound, like the intention of the wound of a parent who says no to a child. A child doesn't like it when the parent says no. It's a wound to the child. Right. It's an insult. But the parent is saying no as a way to draw the child into integration, draw the child into wholeness. When we get to Genesis 3, the intention is completely different. The wound of the serpent with the conversation with the woman is intended to disintegrate. There's a distress that she starts to feel in her body. Adam in Genesis 2 wakes up like, yeah, he's got the gaping chest wound and something is brought to him that is blowing his mind as a result of this. And so even the act of entering into healing is not unlike what God is doing in Genesis 2 with Adam, what we are doing with each other. And so we encounter each other we encounter the beauty of each other by imagining the way that I am 
containing my wounds in my body. Those wounds are not to simply be talked about as an abstract thing. I have to pay attention to what I'm sensing and imaging and feeling. And where it is in the imagination yet, I want to move it continually into this place of the incarnate. And there is this thin line between creating and encountering beauty for the purpose of integration and wholeness and the purpose of devouring. And we see that in our own bodies, but we also see this in the physical world. Yeah. It's often said, I mean, I'm not an architect nor a, nor a student of architecture, but you know, it doesn't take much to look at and what was what has been talked about in many respects as the architecture of, you know, communist Eastern Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And how the architecture itself reflected the souls mm. of those who were so broken at the time. Yeah. And then by comparison, we have Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. You know, I, um, I think I started really noticing architecture in my twenties, like as, as a form of beauty and as something I was attracted to. I, I, I remember taking a tour of the Gamble House in Pasadena, which is, I think it's on Orange Street and it's like Millionaire's Row, I think it was back, you know, and back in the day, these Gamble of Procter and Gamble built their summer house out on this. And, and it's, it was designed by an architecture firm of green and green. It was this arts and crafts style, a lot of mission style furniture, arts and crafts style architecture. And going in and, and having the opportunity to immerse myself in that house and, you know, one, one room, I remember they had a, 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 a Rookwood vase. Uh, Rookwood pottery is a, is a pretty world-renowned pottery out of Cincinnati, actually. And, you know, since Gamble was based here, they took this vase and they designed the whole room around this vase. And it was unbelievable. The stained glass came, you know, the, the whole, everything was centered around this vase. And so the idea of aesthetics being that important, um, wow. you know, obviously they had to have the means to do this kind of thing, but it just really kind of perked my interest. And mm -hmm. I really fell in love with that sort of arts and crafts style, which lent itself a bit to, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's style. A lot of his stuff is very arts and crafts in its base, you know, the Prairie School movement the lines that, that he has in a lot of his buildings and a lot of the furniture, the way it's built, is reminiscent and similar in style. Um, so Falling Waters, in particular what we're talking about today, which hopefully you all have had a chance to go and at least see some images of, it's very easy to find. Just Google Falling Waters and stuff will, will, will start coming up. It was built in 1935. It was commissioned by Edgar Kaufman. Edgar Kaufman owned a department store in Pittsburgh. Kaufman's, uh, Kaufman department, Kaufman's store. department yeah. store, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, did very well. And he loved the outdoors. And he found this piece of property about 40 miles southeast of Pittsburgh um, that he built a cabin, had a cabin built there. And there was a, a creek that ran through with this beautiful waterfall. And he decided the cabin was kind of getting run down and he decided that he wanted to build something on a more grand scale that he can invite people to and, you know, have this, this place. And so he turned to Frank Lloyd Wright to design this house. And so Frank Lloyd Wright comes and he surveys the property and Kaufman's whole idea was, I want a house with a view of the waterfall. 
And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's idea was, I want a house on top of the waterfall that the water <laughs> that becomes a part of the waterfall, that becomes a part of nature, and the waterfall comes out of. And Kaufman wasn't, in the beginning, happy about this idea at all. He didn't, you know, it just wasn't what he had envisioned. Um, yeah. And so... Frank Lloyd Wright is, is set to design. He, they, he finally agrees, and he's going to design it. Kaufman's calling, saying, how's it going? How's it going? And Frank Lloyd Wright's like, I'm almost there. It's beautiful. I'm so excited about it. You know, He's lying through his teeth. He hasn't done a, a bit of work yet <laughs> because he's feeling no inspiration. After he goes and he sees the land, he's just not inspired to do it. So nine months goes by, and at this point, Kaufman thinks the plans are done because Frank Lloyd Wright has told him that they are, which reminds me, I, I had this 1966 Porsche. It was like, like unbelievable. And I had a little accident and the auto body shop I took it to had it for like a month and it was a small little thing. And I called the guy and he's like, yeah, we're almost done. I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's almost done. And I happened to be taking a walk past his thing and it was still sitting there untouched. You know, so I was like, just tell me the truth. So, so why, why Wright wouldn't um, fess up? Anyway, so Kaufman. Okay, but wait, 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 wait. I just, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you for just a second. Yeah. Like, isn't this what we do with ourselves? Speak more. We have this, we have this longing. Yeah. Kaufman has this longing. To be something for something to to to, to be created, we we yeah. have a, we win our lives to be something. Yeah. And then there's a part of us that longs to do the right thing, but like we're not inspired because the, our our traumas keep us like there's these these things. And then and then we like make stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm fine. Yeah. No, it's going very well. It is. Yeah, the design is. is coming along just nicely. It is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 nine months in, Kaufman is two hours away from Frank Lloyd Wright at a business meeting. And he calls him and says, I'm going to be there in two hours to see the plans. So Frank Lloyd Wright goes into this procrastinated, you know, inspired genius and draws the plans out in two hours for Falling Waters. Two hours. It just pours out of him. And, and they're the initial plans for this beautiful, you know. So, so he comes and he sees them and... You know, they, they struggled all through the construction process. He didn't think that, that he brought in engineers at one point to question Frank Lloyd Wright's ability to do these cantilevers and that they're going to, you know, and all this. The engi- it didn't pass the engineer's muster. And Frank Lloyd Wright was like, I don't care. I'm doing it this way. Those, that letter from the engineers is in the concrete in the, in the building now. And he just went ahead and did what he wanted. Although we found out years later that the construction team was putting in a lot more steel to help reinforce everything than that, than, than Wright had wanted in the first place. So it's really interesting. It's this cantilevered building. I, I happen to, so my love for architecture that I, that, that peaked when, not peaked, but I, I uh, bought a condominium in California and it was built by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's by the name of Ray Cappy, who was famous in his own right for these cantilevered dwellings that come out of like the hills. So I was in the Hollywood Hills and, and, it, and when it would rain, water would be cascading. Well, first of all, the roof was flat, which, which Wright was notorious for having these flat roofs. And, and sometimes, although he, he, he talks about form and function going together, sometimes living in these dwellings is not the best. <laughs> but, but we used to call it falling waters because the, the way the rain would cascade off of all these cantilevers. Um, totally. And, and so I, I, I found it really interesting that the estimated cost for building this was $35,000. Uh, 
you know, I mean, we're talking about 1936. So that that's, a, you know, and then the final cost of everything with the guest house was $155,000, which included $22,000 for the finishings and furnishings and $50,000 for the guest house. So it it was a total cost of $155,000 to build this whole thing. And then they did a $3.3 million restoration in 2020. Uh, the Smithsonian calls this one of the, I think, 25 places to see in your lifetime, uh, which mm-hmm. I am going to go. I, you know, my son's now living in Pennsylvania. I'm making a point right. to go. It's, it's, it's something that I have to see. I have to immerse myself in. Yeah. Yeah. So there Dude, is, a- I live less than, I live, I live less than two hours from this place and have, and I've lived here for 30 years and have not been to see this. I, you and- know, I, it's, it's my, it's my goal. And you go can go tour to it. This. And, and if you can't, if you don't have the means and you don't have, you're not two hours away from it, there are, you know, if you go to Falling Water, Frank Lloyd Wright's foundation, there are amazing photographs and great stories, not just about Falling Water, but, you know, all of his architecture and all mm-hmm. of his houses. He was very influenced by Japanese buildings and Japanese culture. You can mm-hmm. see that, especially in Falling Water. He got into some the other forms with Aztec design and, and, you know, and then the curves of, you know, all the different things that, that he did. But this particular brand of his, of his architecture, this, this period was absolutely my, my favorite. And I, and I, so that's, that's a question that I have for you. And I know we're, we, we have to wrap up here, but there are structures that I'm very attracted to. There are design and structure that I'm, that, that my mind wants more of. And then there are others that, you know, I'm, I don't know if repulsed is the right word, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't really want. And so, you know, it feels like that's an inherent thing in me. I don't know Mm -hmm. whether that's, Mm -hmm. that's just personal to me or whether that's universal. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the first question is, is that universal? And the second Mm -hmm. question is, you know, what is that? What is that that's happening? Yeah. Well, I think I, I think um, it, it's true in, in many respects. Like we're we're drawn to certain things fairly constitutionally. Like what you know, what color are you drawn to? What kind of shape are you drawn to? What's a whole range of different ways in which we have a a natural affinity for certain things. In the same way that we have a natural affinity to be drawn to certain things about our own stories. Mm-hmm. And then we have other parts of our stories. We have other architectural designs. structures. Yeah. That we would say, oh, I'm not naturally drawn to that. And even some of these over here, I would say, are really off-putting. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, in in those, you know, one of the things that's, that, that has I've had to learn over the years is that it's one thing to encounter a piece of art, or in this case, an architectural piece. And you might say, uh, oh, I'm really drawn to that, or I'm really not drawn to that. But if you were to say, oh, well, tell me about the architect. What's the architect thinking and feeling? Like, what else is going on with this physical representation? What else is going on? In the same way that there will be things that I experience in my own body that represent, like, the grudges that I hold. And I might say, "Eh, I'm not really, well, maybe I am a little drawn, maybe I'm not really drawn to that, whatever. But, like, tell me the story that's behind that. And my being able to hear more of the story about what's going on. So like you, this story between Kaufman and, and Wright, right. like it's just so compelling. Right. And so if, like, how does a guy in two hours come up with that? And well, you know, kind of like, well, how does a guy study for an exam when he's just procrastinating? But then you, 
you, you do things. You find ways to do things. Mm-hmm. But the point being that there are things that we are naturally drawn to, things that we are like uh, less naturally drawn to. We might even find that we're like mm, kind of off put by it. But like many things in our embodied experience, the question is, am I willing to uh, simply be present with it and observe it long enough for me to begin to appreciate it? Long enough for me to become aware that, oh, this feeling that I have when I'm with this particular piece of architecture that I don't like, what is it like for me to just simply, instead of just, well, therefore, I'm not going to look at it anymore. I'm not going to go visit that. What is it like for me to sit with it? That just reminds me, uh, uh, Guy de Maupassant, you know, that he hated the Eiffel Tower so much, he couldn't look at it. You know where he had lunch every single day? was in the Eiffel Tower so that he didn't have to look at it when he was having his lunch. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, and I think for our listeners, here's, here's the thing. You know, we're not trying to force a square peg into a round hole. We're not trying to say, we're, we're not trying to like, oh, we're going to magically have a conversation about architecture and see what this has to do with the mind and, and our trauma and our healing. Like we're going to like making stuff up. No, we're, we're really saying that Wright's architectural designs and our, not just as a fact, but our encounter with it is a powerful reminder that our encounter with ourselves and with each other and with, and with the world that we, that God is asking us to live in is first and foremost, one of great physicality. Mm -hmm. And it's a, and it's a physicality that God finds to be precious and we can be reminded of that preciousness and of that beauty by encountering those kinds of material world acts of beauty ourselves, like in falling water. Yeah. And to the degree that we practice that, we begin to allow the incarnate to fire our imagination, mm-hmm. to sense a different incarnate experience ourselves of our own story. It's not magic, it's practice, and it's done in the presence of others who do this alongside us. Indeed. Indeed. All right. That was fun. So yeah, right I do on. I do want to say that next week we will be featuring as what we're talking about as far as the artistic portion of the program is Dave Brubeck's Take 5. Now listen. Uh, don't be scared. I know jazz can be a little bit intimidating to people. I think that the, you know this song was selected thinking about that in particular. And I will say that I have taken a couple of walks this week where I've had my earbuds in, earbuds in, and played this song repeatedly and had this sort of multi-sensory experience with the music and the environment that I'm in and my thoughts and letting my mind do things. And it's been a beautiful practice to do this week. I encourage you to try that or something like it. At the very least, give it a listen more than one, give it a couple of shots, and we'll talk about it next week. Right on. All right, Kurt, I love you. Love you, man. Yeah, for All those right. of you uh, watching on YouTube, stick around because producer Amy's going to be joining us. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app 
and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.